listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. Today's guest is a former mentor at SUNY Empire State College, a longtime member of the Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute faculty, as well as a longtime freelancer. His work has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, as well as the LA Times and other publications. He is also the senior editor, literary ombudsman for the spoken word venue, Read 650. In his 50 plus years as a writer, he has published four novels, four nonfiction books, three poetry collections, and three poetry chapbooks. Among his titles are Zen and the Art of Fatherhood, Fear and Loathing of Boca Raton, If I Die Before You Wake, and three recent novels, Take This, Loving Violet, and A Hard Rain. His most recent books include a novel, The Lights Around the Shore and Fire in Paradise, a poetry collection co-authored with Elizabeth Bayou Grace. He is currently at work on a series of three novellas and is anxious to find out how they're connected. It is my pleasure to introduce Stephen Lewis to the show. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, Marshall. You know, I, I, I hate flying, but on a, a recent 3,000-mile flight to California, I finished reading your recent book, The Lights Around the Shore, and it was the most pleasant flight that I've had in a long time, and I'm serious about oh that. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're uh, my best friend now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, y- your book reminded me of Travels with Charlie in, in Search of America, which was written by John Steinbeck in 1961, only the roles are reversed. In your book, Charlie is driving the car. How did you come up with the character of Charlie Messina? You know, I um, I don't come up with anything. I, I know that sounds a little glib or maybe a little fake, but um, I just sit down in front of the uh, screen and start writing, and and very quickly a character shows up, and I I have written about a grumpy old man several times, so that must be. <laughs> something I'm particularly intrigued about, and, and I'm growing into, by the way. You know, you, you mentioned that he, he's a grumpy old man, and uh, I was reading reviews that other people had of the book, and they all mentioned grumpy old man, but I didn't see him as a grumpy old man. I could really relate to him, and, unless I'm grumpy and I don't know it. <laughs> Actually, I agree. I, I you know, I, I sort of use that just as a way to, to throw out a big characterization, but I don't see him as grumpy at all, and I, I really like him. On the other hand, I have to admit, you know, full disclosure here, my wife thinks he's, he's a horrible human being. <laughs> but does she think he's grumpy? Yes, she thinks he's grumpy. All right, well, I guess we're both grumpy and we don't know it. Uh, That's right. That's quite possible. <laughs> now, you, you say you just sit in front of the screen and come up with the characters, but uh, I found out that you owned dogs named Jane, Meldog, Lewis, Gloria, and Plumpy. Did, did these dogs help you in creating the characters of Bad Breath and Dumbass, or, or this just came <laughs> up as you were sitting in front of the screen? No, actually, uh, you know, uh, for a long time... Uh, this, this may be more than you want, but for a long time, I, I wrote commercially and for magazines and, and newspapers and stuff. And um, at some point, I, I grew weary of writing what I knew and began to write 
into what I don't know, to f- really essentially to find out what, what was going on inside. And the first time I did that was with the, the novel Take This, where um, I was online in a convenience store down on Hatteras Island, North Carolina, and heard, I heard someone say, take this. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, isn't that interesting? That's, you know, that's sort of what the universe does to all of us. And I went and I sat down and, and I immediately got, came upon a scene where uh, 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 the first grumpy old man opens the door and his ex-wife is handing him her engagement ring in prelude to the divorce. And she says, take this. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, that, I mean, that was sort of interesting, to, uh, just to start. And, and from that point on, every word, every paragraph, just sort of, I allowed them out. And I tried not to interfere with the story that was unfolding. Uh, there was a lot of editing work to be done after I got through the entire book, but each time I thought I came to a, a sort of a cliff, the story would write itself. Anyway, I, I, it's it's an exhilarating way to write, and it's the way that I wrote this last one. But but still, I I I felt that your description of of the way the dogs act and and behave you had to own a dog in order to be able to to describe oh, yeah. what's going on no ab- absolutely i mean uh, my wife and i have had dogs up until very recently when plumpy passed away uh, for more than 50 years there's never been a time and living with a dog uh, you know and living with children <laughs> Uh, are somewhat similar. You you see how they respond to you and what and uh, and in some ways the dog is the best traveling companion you can, you could possibly have. I'd like to ask you a question about something else. In both books that I read, Fear and Loathing of Boca Raton, A Hippie's Guide to the Second Sixties, and the one where discussing now the lights around the shore, I noticed interesting chapter titles. What what goes into your chapter title selection process? In Fear and Loathing of Boca Raton, which was intended as a more commercial book, I looked for, and the publisher looked for, enticing titles that would grab a reader's attention and make them buy the book. In Lights Around the Shore, the titles were really... Uh, geographic. They, they, they're intended to, uh, since I was such, I was playing with time and space throughout that whole book. It was sort of putting people in the correct time and geography so that, that they were able to get sort of immersed in the story or maybe even lost in the story as it went along. So it was two very different things. But, it, I mean, like I was saying before, that my writing life took a turn maybe 15 years ago into an unpl- each book being an unplanned journey. I'm interested in, in your saying unplanned journey. I, you were talking about this when, you know, you're looking at the screen and uh, things just come up. But there's certain things that I'm really curious how, how you go about doing for example, 
you're describing your experiences driving the stick shift car. And more importantly, one thing that really struck me, and I don't mean this to be a pun here, you take something as mundane as preparing a lucky strike for a smoke. How, how do you go about turning something mundane like that into something that I thought was kind of extraordinary? No, oh, thank you. Um, because, you know, in writing the way that I try to write, the present moment, the moment that I'm writing about becomes more important almost than than anything around it that the the ways that that he would take his lucky strike and i and i drew that directly out of my own experience for far too many years i smoked lucky strikes and uh, there was something almost uh, sacramental about the way that you opened it that way that i opened up a pack and got the cigarette ready and part of that, again, more unintentional than anything, is is to put the reader in the in the moment to get a real visceral sense of what where Charlie is at any given time. And if I could do that, then I have then I have somehow caught the reader's attention deeply enough to have that person come along with me into into uh into an unknown territory i don't know what that makes sense but unfortunately because people aren't smoking as much these days <laughs> i i don't think i don't know if people can appreciate what goes into tapping down a, a cigarette pack and and getting it all ready for right. one cigarette but uh it it was illustrated very well in, in in your descriptions there. Well, that's that's wonderful. <laughs> that's my heart good to hear that. You know, yeah, I, I, I don't. I I actually don't think we necessarily have to uh, know the experience in order to experience it. I think really good writing, or you know, I mean, since you do a lot with music, um, you know, I I can listen to to really old blues people and and i i get a sense of uh, a, a real sense a deep sense of who they are and what their lives are all about and i'm about as far from an early blues man that that you can get well i'm surprised that you say that because uh i i noticed that you're you have a an interested an interest, rather, in music that makes its way into your writing. For for example, you referenced Dylan's I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, which comes up again in the selection from this book, which I asked you to read for us. Uh, would you care to introduce this selection for us? Well, uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie is, um, has had a cardiac event and, um, and, and falls into a coma. And when he wakes up... Um, 48 hours later or months later and that's the whole that's the whole deal here is it's how far was he, how long was he in a coma uh, and and what was he thinking while he was in a coma or experiencing uh, when nevertheless when he wakes up he uh, sees his wife and his 
grown sons and tells them that uh, the, he quotes the line from from Dylan's uh, saying, I, I saw St. Augustine live as you or me. And he also saw his dead daughter and a dog that um, shows up throughout the rest of the book. Let's take a listen to you reading that selection for us. Great. So, Dylan whispers again, eyes flooding, pausing, then glancing through the window at the sparkling green yard. So, what did St. Augustine say to you? He didn't say anything. Mom's right. I don't even believe in God. In fact, it didn't seem like he even noticed me. Maybe it wasn't St. Augustine, just some drugged-out bum in Rome's. Anyway, I thought he was St. Augustine, and he was just standing there next to Joni. I'm sure it was her. Then some dog came up to them. Dog? Bad breath? He's dead too, Dad. They're all dead, Dylan. All three, Augustine, Joni, the breath. This dog was nothing like the breath, except he was fat. Just some random dog? Yeah, you know, kind of an overweight block-headed mutt. Black, thick tail, wagging, like an obese lab. Do you remember Dizzy Gillespie, the black lad we had when you were little? Dylan nods. Like him, but different. Fat. And the three of them were standing in line at a lobster roll stand on the cape. I don't know what to say, Dad. Sounds a little far out to me. I'm not saying it isn't, but I'm not making it up. And as far as I can tell... I'm not crazy. So, Dylan continues, what do you think it means? He looks away toward the marsh. Charlie takes his hand off Dylan's knee and stands up straight. You see something? A brisk shake and then a clip no, but Charlie knows Dylan did. Moments later, after the air in the studio has gone still, the two of them breathless, Charlie murmurs. And then, wouldn't you know it, the damn mutt showed up at the back door yesterday. Turning his head from side to side, then quickly glancing back toward the kitchen, Dylan whispers, Dog? Where's the dog? I guess you can't see it. I can't see it. Right. You can't see it. But I'm not crazy, son. I'm just finding out that once you step through a veil, you can see things that were hidden in all those gauzy layers that keep us cocooned. Things that were always there but just never noticed. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. I guess. Dylan scans the studio and stares out through the window into the marsh. You do know I can't see a dog. Yes, Dylan. So where is it? Right here. Charlie says, pointing to the side of his shoe. And now you're looking at me like you're really afraid I'm crazy. Dylan's flat smile grows toothy. Well, you're right. I am definitely afraid that you're crazy. Batshit Looney Tunes, if you really want to know. He presses his lips together, then adds, But I have to say that I almost kind of like it. After the last how many years... Batshit Looney Tunes would be a relief. That was a selection from The Lights Around the Shore by Stephen Lewis, read by my guest, Stephen Lewis. I 
have a, another question, but I hope I get it right, okay? Uh, you, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. Towards the end of your book, you seem to shift your writing from writing in the third-person perspective to the second-person point of view. I, am I correct in that? Absolutely. What made you approach the story in this way? I originally wrote the... I started writing the first draft in in the usual third-person past tense. And then, because, I, because the book quickly evolved into something about parallel time and moving and moving from one time period to another and having some time periods overlap, I got increasingly interested in, first of all, in the subject, and then how to present that. And so it actually wasn't just at the end that the, that the, that the piece shifts. The book has something like six sections. There's some of it that's written past tense, first person past tense, second person past tense, and third person past tense. And the same thing with present tense. There's no future, so I guess I was right about six. Anyway, there are six parallel overlapping scenes that go back to give that that sense that not just deja vu, but things that are happening now have already happened and will happen again in the future. And that sort of the bottom line is that we can, if we get across that threshold, we can experience every moment of our lives as if it's happening simultaneously. When I got to that point in the book, it uh, became like a Twilight Zone episode for me. It it really... uh, it was right. very, very powerful, I thought. Well, God, <laughs> we need to have a drink together because oh. you are officially my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, w- would it be a, a spoiler alert to explain your title choice for The Lights Around the Shore? As with a fair amount of, of things in my writing life, I stumbled across that poem. That's all. Um, and and suddenly, you know, it's like uh, I could see, I could see myself or I could see Charlie looking out and, and realizing that um, that poem, you know, hearing that poem, thinking about that poem that, uh, and that whole notion of parallel existence and parallel lives, it, it just fit. And, you know, it, it, in a way, I'm, I may be going far afield here, but I think a lot about about you know being in love or loving someone is that it's never a conscious decision. And you know, and when I think back at 54 years of marriage, you would look at my wife and I and, and say that we, you know, we're almost unsuited for each other, and. Uh, it turns out that we're, you know, in a funny way, perfect for each other because of things about each other that we that that don't fit. Anyway, I mean, I'm I'm going far afield here, but that title came out of a poem that I stumbled upon and realized that it had something to tell me, rather than than me telling a reader something. I didn't realize it was a poem. I I discovered that it was a almost like a ballad uh, song. And 
when I uh, when I heard the uh, singing, then I looked at the cover of your book, and everything started to make sense in a different way. I I, I was curious about the the cover. Who designed your cover, and what went into that? that, that that's one of wonderful serendipity. I have. Uh, a friend from high school, Marjorie Weiss, who's a painter, and um, I have—I haven't—I've only seen her probably three or four times in the last since whenever I graduated in high school in 1964. Um, and but I see her stuff online, and uh, this—you know—this particular. Uh, painting or digital painting i think it really was uh just struck me and and not only did it strike me but since dumbass or saras who came the dog that came into the story uh i could see him in that in that painting a little bit of serendipity being i called her up asked her if we could use the painting and uh, another high school friend actually designed the cover for the publisher Speaking of high school, were you a, a gearhead as a teenager? You, you have a, a great way of describing how a stick shift car <laughs> operates. So I, I was just curious if if you had no gearhead no, experiences I, I, in high school. No, not really. I mean, I I drove a stick shift, but it was uh, no. I was pretty much an empty-headed high school kid played sports and uh, saw my girlfriend and, and, and that was that was pretty much my life. But it goes along with what we were talking about just before about creating a moment. Um, there's something about the, the actual physical act, the physical properties of anything that we do that uh, that I'm not only interested in but that draws a reader into a situation. Um, the, if if anything, if I have any intent, it's to stop. It's to stop a reader from thinking and be, or being an observer and being part of whatever the scene is. And the scene comes from something very visceral. I mentioned in the introduction that you also have three poetry chapbooks. For listeners who may not be familiar with chapbooks, can you explain them for us? Yeah, a chapbook is is like a really sh it's a short collection of poems. Um, usually, they're uh, uh, they can range from like sixteen pages to thirty two pages, but they're many of them are like half a book of poems. And small poetry presses put them out uh, not only as a means of of you know of, of saving some money and all of that, but really it's. It, it's almost uh, um, the right format for reading poems. You know, if you have 15 or 20 poems, that's, that's a nice question. You can go through and read it, and you can, and you can put it down, and you can come back to it. Uh, some big poetry collections are almost overwhelming, and poems get lost. But the chapbook is just a short book, that's all, like a chapter. Chapbooks sounds to me like chat bots, and I. In addition to to writing, you're also teaching, and yep. I was wondering if uh, you could share any of your teaching experiences. Sure. And I'll, I'll get back to chat bot 
and how that <laughs> relates to my question in a second. All right. Um, you know, I, 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 I've taught everything from ninth grade through uh, graduate school. But probably the most, uh, the most important day, I, I think, in my, my teaching life was, uh, was one day I was, I was over in Poughkeepsie, and over in Milford, Millbrook, New York, and uh, teaching a bunch of high school seniors. And they all did absolutely miserably on, on a quiz that I had made up. And, and it was you know, <laughs> so disappointing because I realized they really hadn't heard anything I had to say. And then uh, I went to my college class that night in New Paltz, and, uh, and we were talking about some book, doesn't matter. And I realized that they also hadn't heard what I had said to class before, that they, they had their own ideas. And then I got home that night, and uh, I, got a call, uh, I got a call from one of my kids' English teachers saying <laughs> they hadn't been doing homework. So it, it was just one of those days, and I, and I you know, after a, a hard night, I realized that my job as an English teacher or a writing teacher was not to tell them what they needed to learn, but to listen to them, um, what they got, and then, re and then if I could, redirect the conversation. And so I began to think of myself more as a, a, uh, as a doorman, you know, minus the epaulets and the, and the stripe down the side of my pants, where I would invite students into the room, make sure they're comfortable, and then ask them what they uh, what they thought, and um, it changed my life as a teacher uh, tremendously. Not that there aren't ups and downs, but um, giving giving students the voice or giving the students equal part in the discussion. First of all, especially with high school kids, made them do homework. They read, they did the reading. The way I I want to weave chatbot into this is that now I. I I'm finding out that they have these AI chatbots where a student right. can just tell the computer, okay, write me a story about uh, an invisible dog. Uh, how, how can you deal with that as a teacher? You know, I, um, it's, it, it's somehow, in, in my mind, aligned with what I was talking about before about, about love, um, that no matter how much these chatbots can do, they they can never create the magic that a good writer does in a book or a musician or any artist of any, of any kind. Um, it's harder if, if you're asking to look at a student's essay about F. Scott Fitzgerald or something, but it's still missing the the soulful expression that each student would have i know they're they're creating programs to 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 check these chat bots but um uh, i i don't think they could ever create a short story or a poem or or a novel that that would that would reflect the the inner life of a person i mean something happens in the writing that's magical and a computer can't do that. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. However, 
I don't want to disappoint my listeners, and I asked some listeners to send in questions, and I want to fit this last question in, if you don't mind. Sure. Again, I asked readers to pose some questions for you, and one question is tied to a piece that you wrote about for spirituality and health, and it was titled Marked Man. And Rob from New York wanted to know more about your tattoos. Could you try to answer Rob's question? I've always liked tattoos up to a certain point. And um, because I'm Jewish, there, I, ha- I have this notion that this was, this, this was um, something that one, one should never do. And, uh, and whether it's true or not, it was like you couldn't get buried in the Jewish cemetery, which wouldn't interest me anyway. In any case, I, I, got, a, uh, I got a small tattoo of, of Hatteras Island, which was sort of my, my sanctuary, it still is to, to a large degree, on my arm. And um, it, was, it was like, um, I felt it was like one of the more audacious things I had ever done. I had stepped over a line. Um, and as soon as I left the studio in Woodstock, New York, uh, I, I wanted to go back in and get another one. That's, and that's been the experience. I, I probably have 10 tattoos uh, on my arms. And they're all, they're, uh, each time is the same thing. I, uh, there's something about decorating my body with things that are, or symbols that, images that, that are very meaningful to me. And, uh, and they, they sort of live beyond me. Uh, that's all. Uh, there's just something wonderful about getting a tattoo that I can understand that a lot of people wouldn't. I hope that answers Rob's question. I do and, too. But uh, as I said, we're, we're running out of time, but for readers who are listening to this, where can your books be found? The usual places, um, Amazon, you can order them from bookstores. A lot of them are probably out of print just over the years. But you can almost always get it on Amazon, and and just because I like independent bookstores more than Amazon, um, you can go and, and they can a small bookstore can order anything that you want that's still available. And do you have a uh, a website? I do. Uh, com. Very good. And 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 as long as I'm plugging myself, I I do a poetry uh, newsletter called poemsfromthecrag.com. I will put all of those in the link to this show so that people can uh, can just click on it and get to it right away. Stephen Lewis, I'm so happy that you were able to take the time to speak with me, and I hope to hear from you again real soon. Me too. Thank you, Marshall. Much, much appreciated. You've been listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. This program was written and produced by Marshall. Our theme music was played by Ululation. Mr. Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio. Mr. Radio.